20s in America were a very good time. Production and employment were high and rising. Wages were not going up much, but prices were stable. Although many people were still very poor, more people were comfortably well-off, well-to-do or rich than ever before. Finally, American capitalism was undoubtedly in a lively phase. Between 1925 and 1929, the number of manufacturing establishments increased from 183,900 to 206,700. The level of their output rose from $60.8 billion to $68 billion. The Federal Reserve Index of Industrial Production, which had averaged only 67 in 1921, had risen to 110 by July 1928 and it reached 126 in June 1929. In 1926, 4,301,000 automobiles were produced. Three years later, in 1929, production had increased by over a million to 5,358,000, a figure which compares very decently with the 5,700,000 new car registrations of the opulent year of 1953. Business earnings were rising rapidly, and it was a good time to be in business. Indeed, even the most jaundiced histories of the era concede, tacitly, that times were good, for they nearly all join in taxing Coolidge for his failure to see that they were too good to last. John Kenneth Galbraith, author of The Great Crash, 1929. The devastation of World War I depressed much of the world economically and socially, but in the years immediately after the war, the American public underwent a decade of prosperity and changing social mores. The decade became known as the Roaring Twenties, named after the ferocity for which the decade seemed to greet America. In addition to the cultural phenomena during the Roaring Twenties, the stock market and industry also boomed. Americans benefited from rapid technological advances as taller skyscrapers were built and faster airplanes were designed. Charles Lindbergh flew across the Atlantic in the spirit of St. Louis and radio became a new national pastime. Given how the decade had gone, the sense of optimism was understandable. But while the stock market crash of 1929 is often remembered as seemingly coming out of nowhere and shocking investors to the extent that some of them committed suicide, at least a few writers were worried about such an event over a year in advance. As early as May 1928, the Wall Street Journal warned, It is to be feared that the agitation, criticism against speculation in Wall Street is very largely a case of sour grapes. It is felt that some people are making money with apparent ease and it is known that they are making it in Wall Street, which is always an object of distrust to the demagogue. The radical politician feels that he must show injury to others somehow. Without the slightest knowledge of the stock market and its almost automatic safeguards, he says that the speculation is a danger to the country. That July, the North American Review similarly weighed in. The machinery through which the excited speculation in stocks is operating has commenced to creak and groan as strains are put upon it which it was never designed to meet. The fuel of desire to make money by selling something at a higher price than was paid for it is still being poured into the market. And this desire, as Colonel Ayers of Cleveland says, cannot be killed, it must commit suicide. Therefore the observer of things financial, as May 1928 draws to a close, must share some of the feelings of a watcher at the bedside. He is overlooking a mob movement leading towards a stock market break, the effects of which only the most acrobatic, the most favored, and those who have participated least in proportion to their resources can expect to escape. 
Charles Edwin Mitchell would go down in history as the banker whose mistakes in investing led to the crash, but that is hardly fair. As his son Craig once observed, the mood of the era, I think, can be best remembered by the hit song, Was that 1929 Blue Skies? Yeah, nothing but blue skies do I see. Yes, the bank prior to father's being elected president in 1921 was geared mainly to doing business with large corporations. Father pointed the bank for the first time in the direction of going after the little man and Yederman, every man, all right. How old was he then? Thirty-eight years old, and the National City Company had four offices. And then, within three years, there was over fifty offices, and by 1929, it was the largest distributor of securities in the world. For the first time in the country's history, many average Americans were playing the stock market. As Rita Cushman, Craig Mitchell's sister, recalled, that was the whole tenor of the day.